we enter an exciting season in our church's life today as we get ready to kick off our, our, small, our, our small groups for this fall. And uh, we have provided you two easy ways to join up. If you're not already in one, I want to let you know about uh, before we dive into our, our message. And the first one is this. You can uh, stop by uh, the small group table out on the courtyard, uh, speak with Pastor Chris Martinez and his team, and they're going to be happy to answer questions, give you information, connect you up to the group uh, that would best meet your needs. That's the first way. And the second way is uh, you can look at the groups that are listed on the small groups catalog uh, that you got in your program um, and uh, pick the one that you think would uh, meet your needs the best, the one you'd like to join. And then all you need to do is take a a connect card and uh, write that group's number on the card and uh, put it in the offering bag at the end of the service. Oh, by the way, in case it wasn't clear, tell us your name and your contact information too, because uh, we haven't advanced to that level where we can actually look at a number on a connect card and figure out who wants to be in this particular group. So we need to have your name as well. And we're telling you about this because at Southwinds, we really do believe that life is always better together. We really do believe that if you're not in a small group, you are missing out on so much of what God really has for you as you follow him. So we hope you will, you will be able to get connected very, very soon and be part of our small groups this fall. Uh, with that being said, welcome to week number three of our series, Awesome, our study where we are learning about how uh, to fear God. And today we are in Isaiah's prophecy once again. You'll want to get your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah 40 is all about God's majesty and mercy. It is one of the most amazing depictions of God that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. I just want to say it like this. The more you get this chapter, the more you're going to fear God. I told you last Sunday that fearing God happens the more we know him as he truly is. Not as we think of him in our own minds, but as he reveals himself to be. And Isaiah 40 is one of those places in the Bible where God is displayed in all his glory so very, very clearly. Um, As we're going to see in a minute, uh, chapter 40, verse 9 uh, tells us, here is your God. And more literally, that phrase could be translated, behold your God. So here he is, look at him, gaze on him, see him. Uh, This means we're going to behold God today. And this is the central idea I want you to focus in on uh, this morning. God is awesome. His majesty and mercy are all we need. One of the things that we are seeing in this series is that all too often, all of us have a tendency to focus in on just a part of who God is. And, and it is so crucial that we train ourselves to see God the way he reveals himself in all of his glory, not just picking the parts here and there that we like the best. And Isaiah 40 is a great place to help us to do, do this very thing. So there are three things we're going to see today, three things that Isaiah 40 calls us to do. And you'll write this first one down uh, in your message notes. Number one, behold the majestic God who comforts us with his grace. Now, verses 1 through 11 set the scene. And I want to give you the context. Isaiah lived and wrote in the second half of the 8th century BC, around 740 uh, to 700 BC. He was writing his prophecy to a nation that was facing God's judgment. And, And we know from studying this book that the first part of it, which is Isaiah 1 through 39, 
prophesies what a holy God is going to do to his people who refuse to repent. This prophesied judgment culminates in a future exile. God prophesied this is going to happen in the land of Babylon. Historically, this exile begins in the year 597 BC, about 100 years after Isaiah uh, prophesied. The second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, that half was written primarily for the people who would live through the exile, the Babylonian captivity. In other words, it was written for people who would live 100 to 150 and even more years after Isaiah's time. So he's writing prophetically to people who are going to be coming out of a very, very hard time. 70 years in captivity, 70 years in exile, and they're going to need to uh, rebuild their lives. They're going to need to rebuild their homeland. They're going to need to hear God's voice. They're going to need to know who God was. They're going to need to fear God. And that's where we begin. That's the context in which this prophecy comes. Verse one, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Now, I want you to understand, Isaiah is writing, he's speaking to people who felt that they were beyond the reach of God's kindness and grace. They felt like their lives had been ruined by sin. And some of us have been there, right? We look around and all we can see are the consequences of our bad choices. We, we look to our, our future and it feels like there is nothing ahead for us but pain, nothing but the reminders of our failures. We just feel it is too late for me. And Isaiah is saying to his people at this time, but also to us, God's judgment is over now. Your sin has been paid for. God is calling you to trust him again. He comforts us with God's grace. Verse three says, a voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this these verses are just this powerful proclamation of God's salvation for his people. He is saying to these exiled people who are going to go home that he will make a highway in the desert, that he will rescue them, that he will come to them and meet them in the place of their barrenness, in the place of their desert. He meets us even in our sin-parched land. He comes and he says, I'm going to bring salvation. I'm going to make a way where there is no way. He says, you see valleys and you see mountains. I'm going to make a plain. I will smooth things out. I will bring my salvation where you least expect it. It's just this picture of God coming to us in his grace and making things right when we don't deserve it. Is that good news? Verses six through eight. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's what he's to cry out. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. What's going on here? Well, sometimes in our lives, just like then, God's promises can seem really small compared to man's power that's all around us. 
And these people hearing this prophecy in Babylon must have been tempted to look around and say, what, are you kidding? You're gonna make a pathway in the desert? I mean, we're in Babylon. They're not gonna let us even go. How are we gonna get back? And God says to his prophet, cry out to them. And Isaiah says, what do I cry? And God says, remind my people that man is grass compared to me. God is awesome. And man at his best, man at his brightest will fade away. Man with his, his greatest strength will not last. Only the promises of God stand forever. And it seemed in that moment like Babylon was in control. Isaiah reminds God's people the word of God remains true. And it's still true today. Only the word of God stands true forever. So you may be here this morning and it feels to you like some person in your life. Their choices, their decision are controlling you and controlling your future. Maybe your boss, maybe your spouse, maybe one of your kids. I mean, you ever been there? It feels like some leader, maybe like some politician is is directing your future and God's word says, no, they're all like grass. No human being has ultimate power over you. Only the word of God never fails. Only the word of God lasts forever. I want to say something about this by extension. We understand today on this side of the cross, having received the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, we understand because of that, that the essence of God's word that stands forever is the gospel. I want you to be clear on that. The word that God has made a way for man to be reconciled to him, it is the word of Christ crucified, it is the word of Christ resurrected from the dead for the forgiveness of sinners. It is the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate word of God to us that always stands forever. And having said that, here's what I want to say next. If you are here and you are not a believer in Christ, I want to urge you today. I want to urge you, trust in Christ Believe in Christ. I tell you today, I declare today that he truly is the son of God, that he truly has died to pay for sins, that he truly has been raised from the dead. And you get a lot of messages, a lot of words in this life. But the Bible says all those other words, they will all fade away. They will all be forgotten. There is only one truth that lasts forever. And that is this, there is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. See, Babylon didn't stand forever. You can go to Iraq today, and it's just ruins, dust. And yet every promise in God's word has proven true. The United States of America, I mean, God bless our country. I love our country. I am so grateful for our country. But the Bible is very clear. It won't stand forever. Only God's word stands forever. Southwinds Church. I love this church. I'm so grateful that I get to be your pastor, but this church is not going to last forever. Only the gospel, only God's word stands forever. And I say all this to say to you, you can build your life on this truth. That's what we're being told here. We can trust God and trust his word. Now, all that leads up to verses 9 to 11, and they say this, You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Here's your God. See, God has amazing good news, and he wants his people to shout them out, those words out with boldness and joy. 
Here is your God. Behold your God. And that's what he's about to do in this chapter. He's going to show us God. Verse 10, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Now, what is so incredible about these last two verses, verses 10 and 11, is Isaiah reveals this incredible juxtaposition of two truths. On the one hand, God is so powerful. He, he comes with power. His arm rules for him. Do you hear the strength in that? That's verse 10. But then in verse 11, we're told that God cares for us. He is tender to those who are weak. And you'll see again the word arm for God. Uh, God's arm is also tender. He, he, he comes and he carries gently those who are weak and, and, and have young. That's what Isaiah is going to be talking about the rest of the chapter. God's majesty, God's mercy all together. And I do not know this morning what you may be facing in your life. Some of you are here today and you are facing real loss. Just a couple of days ago, we had a, a, a memorial service in this room for a young man who took his own life. And there are people who are facing real loss today, and maybe some of you. Some of you are here today with broken relationships. Some of you are facing serious struggles with your work or maybe with your health or you're suffering from depression. There's all these hurts and these burdens that we carry. And I want to say to you today, each of us needs more than anything, one thing, and that is to behold our God. Nothing is more important for us to do in our lives than to behold him and look at him and gaze on him to consider his beauty, his glory. There is nothing better for your soul than to behold your God. And it is how you learn to fear him. Some of us today may need to hear exactly this. You need to take your eyes off yourself, off your circumstances, off your enemies and adversaries, and behold your God. See, who or what are you beholding today? What is it that you are gazing on and you are finding yourself saying, you know, this is the biggest thing in my life. If that is anything other than God, that thing you are beholding one day it's going to break your heart. One day it's going to let you down. One day it will fail you. See, don't behold a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife. Don't behold a pastor or some leader. All those things will fail. They will all let you down. Behold your God. Look on him. Gaze on him. See him as he reveals himself to be. Verse 10 all about God's majesty. God comes with power. Verse 11, all about God's mercy. God comes with tenderness and gently leads his people. You see, God wants to do that for you. He wants to do that in your life. Behold your God who comforts you with his grace. Now, verses 12 through 26 take us to the second thing. Go ahead and write this down. Behold the majestic God who confronts us with his power. Verses 12 through 14, we see God confronts us first with his majesty in creation. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? We'll, we'll take this one phrase at a time. Measured the waters. So I want you to get the hollow of your hand ready, all right? Go ahead, do it. Everybody here, just kind of take your hand out, look at the hollow, raise it up a little so you can think about it. Um, 
Look at that little place in the middle and just guess in your mind how much that holds. An ounce? Something like that? I don't know. He's trying to show you. Isaiah is trying to show you how awesome God is. He says, just, just think about all the water in all the world. I did a little research this week on Wikipedia, which is on the internet, which is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. <laughs> and it said there are 326 million cubic miles of water in the world. That's a mile by a mile by a mile. 326 million times. And God says, I've got it all right here. Behold God's majesty. He, he, he writes, with the breadth of his hand, he marked off the heavens. Some, some translations talk about a span, and that was a standard measurement back then that, that went from the tip of your thumb to the tip of, of your little finger. I mean, look at your hand. Estimate how big you think it is. I, I don't know if you know, but I know exactly how big mine is, because when I was a teenager, I was playing basketball, and I wanted so badly to dunk a basketball. And I read that if your hand got to nine inches, you could dunk a basketball. And mine got to eight and a quarter and stopped. <laughs> eight and a quarter, that's how big my hand is. And God says, how big shall I make the universe? And he holds up his hand and he says, about that big. I mean, just think of the size of the universe, solar systems and, and billions and billions of stars and galaxies and supernovas and black holes. And God says, about that big. We tend to think sometimes of, of space as this huge, cold, dark, black, empty cavern. And, and God is being real big, but he's somehow inside of that, maybe even dwarfed by that. And Isaiah says, no, God measured the whole thing with just the breadth of his hand. So you need to picture, you need to try to conceive of the whole universe as fitting inside God's hand. Now, of course, God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. But how do you measure what is finite compared to what is infinite? The universe is finite. God is infinite. He holds it all like this. Isaiah is just trying to describe for us the awesomeness of God. Next, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Okay, so just think about all the dirt in the world, all the sand. It's like God puts it all, all of it in a basket. God's massiveness in creation. And you'll just notice how God is at work in this, in this creation, calculating, measuring, spanning. It's not a picture. Don't think of God as having started the universe, winding it up like a clock and letting it unwind on its own while he roams off to do something else. He is always present. He is always personally superintending, providentially running everything that exists. Next, he weighed the mountains. You, some of you heard me tell you that about five years ago, I hiked uh, up Half Dome, and when we were coming close, you know, you, you go around the backside, and you come around the other side, and then you go up from the other side from where you start, and, and, and as we got closer, I had this, this really crazy thought as I saw this view that I want to show you right here, and as I saw this view, I actually said this out loud, I wonder how much that weighs. God knows God weighs 
all the mountains of the world like on a scale, like you weigh some tomatoes at Safeway. Many of us somehow these days will find ourselves thinking of God and talking about how close God is to us. Uh, Theologians have a word for this. It's the eminence of God, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. It's about God's nearness to us. And many of us actually sort of prefer that aspect of God to what we're talking about right now because we're talking about God's transcendence. What I'm trying to help you, help you see is that both of these things are important. We, we can focus too much on God's imminence. A lot of times we'll say things like, well, I asked Jesus into my heart. And, and by the way, uh, that's a phrase never found anywhere in Scripture. I, I understand why people use it. But we can find ourselves focusing sometimes on, well, God was with me today in my car. Or, you know, last night I woke up and God was with me in my, my bedroom and we can inadvertently end up kind of skewing the truth about God because God is not just an imminent God. He is a transcendent God. And, and let me just say this. Technically, technically, God is not in our presence. Do you get that? We are in his presence. The apostle Paul said, in him, we live and move and have our being. Now, of course, God is everywhere, but, but if you find yourself thinking about that like he's this little person sort of following you around, whatever you're doing, then you're, you're mistaken. You're reducing the awesomeness of God. We are ever and we are always in his presence. This idea that a God who measures the heavens, that, that you would move somewhere and, and you would somehow be closer or farther from him, it's just, that's absurd. I want you to notice next God's majestic wisdom. Look at verse 13. He, He says, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Now, these are rhetorical questions, and the answer is very obvious, right? I mean, no one. No one has ever taught God anything. God has never once in all eternity said, really? I never thought about that. Or, wow, that's a new thought. He's never said that. Uh, Notice verse 14. I'm going to ask the rhetorical questions, and I want you to give the answer, and that actually means out loud using your lips and your voice, just in case you're confused. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? You see, no one influences God. No one impacts God and changes God. No one teaches God. He already knows everything. He's majestic in wisdom. You say, well, you know, there's a lot of people in our world who don't think very much about God. Truth is, I know some, they don't give a rip about God. Well, what does God think of them? Well, look at verses 15 to 17 for God's view on that. This is God's majesty over the nations. It begins, verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Now, you need to be real clear because some of you, you've kind of OD'd a little bit on nice Sometimes you need to be real clear what's going on here. God is being very blunt. In fact, I would just say God's talking some smack right here. So you need to read it that way. This is actually a pretty belittling way that he's speaking to the nations. But you know what? He's God and he can do that. 
It's sort of like this. All nations are just a drop in a bucket. So you're carrying a bucket of water. Maybe across the driveway, you're going to wash your car. It sloshes and a drop spills out. And you notice that drop hits the ground and it disappears. That's what he's talking about here. That's America. That's Europe. That's Russia, China, Iran. Isaiah continues, they are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. I have an idea. Why don't you try this the next time you're at the meat counter at Rayleigh's, okay? Tell the guy who's weighing your meat, hey, before you weigh that meat, I want you to wipe the dust off the scales. I don't want to pay for any dust. (laughs) And then take a picture of him as he looks at you, thinking, this person's crazy. I want to get him out of here real fast. You don't care about dust, right? Dust doesn't matter. Dust doesn't impact anything. It doesn't change anything. And Isaiah says, in comparison to God, that is all the nations, all like dust. Verse 16, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. Have you ever heard the phrase, the cedars of Lebanon? It was a phrase in that ancient world that's talked about these massive forests, so many trees. And and Isaiah says, if you cut down all those trees, had a massive bonfire, that wouldn't impress God. Or You could take all the animals in the world and you could sacrifice them, be really, really religious. That'll impress God big time if we're religious like that. And he says, nor it's animals enough for burnt offerings. God's answer to that is it's nothing. Now you may hear that and you may think, well, we don't make any impact on God at all, but that is not the point. The point is this, if God cares for you and me, and he does, it is because God chooses to. See, we need to remove from our minds all thoughts that we somehow influence God. Well, you know, I think God cares for me because my mother was a great person. Wrong. Well, I think God cares for me because I decided to yield my life to him. I'm serving him. Wrong. And if you will just understand, if you will get that, you will see how freeing that is. I mean, we find ourselves thinking, I want God to care for me because he likes me, because that is how human relationships work. But that denies our sinfulness. If God only cares for us because of who we are, we all end up lying to ourselves about who we are. We can't be honest about it because we want to receive that care. Isn't it great to know that God loves you because he chose to set his love on you? God doesn't love you because you impressed him. God loves you because in his infinite grace, out of his infinite love, he chose to set his mercy on you. And that is truth that sets you free. You say, well... Don't I make any impact? See, what Isaiah is doing here is taking these small things we understand, measures and spans and dust on scale, little things, and then even things we think are big, like nations. And he's saying, look, all these things together, you you don't know how big and how massive, how majestic God is if you think that somehow with our little things, we are swaying the heavens. Verse 17 Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You know, I I don't even think God reads the New York Times or watches Fox News. And, And if he did, it wouldn't make any difference. I mean, nothing stops 
God's unalterable purposes in this world because he is awesome. Our God, behold him. Our God is awesome. His majesty and his mercy are all that we need. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? And the answer, of course, is there is no image to compare God to, nothing to compare him to. So how can we, how can we make any claim that, that an image actually represents him? And this leads us to this, God's majesty over all idols. And, and this part actually is the funniest part of Isaiah 40, verse 19. It, it's, talk, it's talking about how ridiculous it is that people make idols. It says, as for an idol, a craftsman casts it. It's like, hey, Martha, going to be home late for, for dinner tonight a little bit. I, I got to make God. But this isn't just any God. Actually, this is a gold God, a 24-karat God. A goldsmith overlays it with gold. And this gold God even has a silver chain. He fashions silver chains for it. It's like, wow, check out their God. They've got a gold God with a silver chain. Put it on the mantle. Now, for most of us here in Tracy, we don't, we don't live the lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? So we don't get the verse 19 God. We have to settle for the verse 20 God if we make one. So this one says, a man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. It's kind of like, hey, if I have to make a God out of wood, I should at least get some good wood. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. So not just any carpenter, not just some guy who's, you know, like scale plus a buck, I'm going to real craftsman. I'm going to have a great wooden God. Mine will be so good, it won't fall over. That's my God. Do, do you see how absurd, ludicrous, ridiculous this is? Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that idols only happen in places in Africa and Asia? If you do, you probably have some idols parked on your property, in your house right now. The great tendency of the human race, the theologian John Calvin said, the human heart is an idle factor. We are always, apart from God's grace, manufacturing idols. And it can be anything at all that substitutes for God. My career, my bank account, my investments, my intelligence, my family, my plans. All those things can become God to us, and we laugh at silly people out in a forest who carve out gods, and then we go do the exact same thing. To Christians, even sometimes, do something like this. We kind of cut through the scriptures, and we say, well, I like this part. This will be my God. I like that part. This will be my God. But I don't care for this part, so I'm not going to really read that and think about that. See, Isaiah is reminding us we don't get to make God. We don't get to choose God who we want him to be. God is who he says he is, who he reveals himself to be. God is awesome. His majesty, his mercy are what we need. Look at verse 21. It says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Now think about this. He compares mankind to grasshoppers. Anybody insulted here? If you're not, 
You're sort of not paying attention. Think about this. God looks at man and it's like an insect in comparison. What do we do? Well, we worship other people many times, don't we? We pay hundreds of dollars to see athletes perform and and artists perform, celebrities, actors. These people that we see are so important. And God is just saying it doesn't matter. The most talented, the most beautiful, the most brilliant, the richest, the most powerful, the greatest strategists, the greatest leaders, all of them compared to me like insects. The heavens. This describes all that God has created in the universe. I've shared uh, this picture with you before. I've I've tried for many years to find a better description of the size of the universe. And some of you have probably heard this before, but I just think it's so clear. And it's an answer to the question, how, how do we conceive of the size of the universe that God spoke into existence by the word of his power? And here's how we're gonna do it. This piece of paper, okay? Its thickness is gonna represent for us the distance from the earth to the sun, which is 93 million miles, okay? Earth to sun, are you with me? Do I need to ask again? (laughs) Everybody with me on this? 93 million miles? So the distance to the nearest star we know, the closest star to Earth, that would take a stack of these papers 71 feet high. Again, every single piece of paper representing 93 million miles. The distance to the edges of our galaxy from end to end, just one galaxy, and there are billions of galaxies in the universe, well, that would be represented by a stack of this paper 310 miles high. The distance from Tracy to about Los Angeles. Every piece of paper in a 310-mile stack, every piece of paper, 93 million miles, and that's just our galaxy. Some of you are going, oh yeah, I get that. Really? (laughs) Now think about this. The known universe, and again, we haven't found the edge. (laughs) The known universe, what we are aware of, that would take a stack of paper 31 million miles high. Every single piece of paper, 93 million miles. And for those of you who are liking math a little bit, you want to kind of figure this out, I'll explain it to you. Uh, There are 10.4 million sheets of paper in a stack one mile high. Therefore, the known universe is 31 million miles of paper with each mile containing 10.4 million sheets of paper, each sheet of paper representing 93 million miles. Anybody getting a little dizzy? And the Bible says, that God stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. It's like God, when he created all that I have just tried so inadequately to describe to you, when he said, let's make the heavens now, it was like you setting up a camping tent. God is awesome. So just think about this. Take your problems and By definition, by comparison, all our problems are small next to God and bring those problems before the awesome majesty of God and see if that doesn't give you a little perspective. Verse 23, 
He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. I mean, just think, whatever happened to Napoleon? Well, he died in exile on an island somewhere. Whatever happened to Hitler? I guess they never found his body. What about Saddam? When I moved to Tracy in 2003, we were all worried about him, right? He ended up in a hole in the ground, hiding. What about Osama bin Laden? Just 15 years ago, he led an attack on our nation. He's gone. And one day, Putin will be gone. One day, Abu Bakr Baghdadi, who's the current leader of ISIS, he will be gone. So will all of our presidents, all of our congressmen, all of our Supreme Court justices, everybody will be gone. This is all of this is just in terms of its impact on God. Verse 24 says, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. It's all temporary. God actually, in verse 25, picks the case up himself. It's now not Isaiah speaking, but God himself. And this is really the whole point of these verses. This is where it's all leading. God says to you, to me, he says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. I mean, just think about it. How do we determine and define greatness? We, 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 we compare one person to another, right? I mean, we do it all the time. We do it with athletes. Who's the greatest of all time? You know, we do it with celebrities. We do it with billionaires. Who, who is worth the most? We, we, we create a benchmark of greatness, and then we compare other people to that benchmark. God is saying here, there is no benchmark for me. There is nothing you can compare me to. God is incomparable. God says, I'm not like anything else. There's no analogy for me. If you say God is like, no, he's not. He's beyond. He's awesome. He's awesome in power. And it's kind of like this. In case, in case we weren't feeling small and insignificant enough already, anybody feeling small and insignificant? And if you don't feel that way, it just means you haven't been paying attention. It, it, God, God tells us, in light of all this, we already feel small, insignificant. God says, look at the stars. You know, astronomers tell us today the average person can see Two to 3,000 stars. We understand that the ancients, when there was less light pollution and they probably had better eyes because they didn't read so much, they could see between six and 10,000 stars. But you could take any telescope and pick a spot in the sky, even one that seems devoid there, and you're going to start finding galaxies. And if the telescope is powerful enough, you will find thousands of galaxies as far as you can see. The Milky Way galaxy where we reside has about 200 billion stars, just one galaxy, just one of an estimated 200 to 500 billion galaxies in the visible universe. And if you're doing the math on it, I'll help you out, okay? This makes the number of stars that we have some awareness of that we can guesstimate about, it makes that number 4 million quintillion stars. That's a four followed by 21 zeros. And most of our brains just did right now, right? <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to us, does it? Because it's just too big. We just go whatever because we can't even 
begin to touch it. It's so big, just so big. And Isaiah, recording God's words for us, tells us that like a vast military parade, our majestic God numbers all the stars. He has a name for each one of them. You know, I'm your pastor, and I love you, and I work hard every week to do my best to remember your names. And I don't remember all your names. And you're gracious to me about that, okay? Because there's like 2,000 of you. And some of you, you know, I mean, some of you, you know how many kids you have, but you're not sure what their names are. (laughs) God numbers and God names the stars. Four million quintillion. Do you see what Isaiah is doing as God reveals himself? He's teaching us about the majestic transcendence of God, this truth that God is totally beyond us, completely above us, totally not like us. So he's saying, take your little conception of of God as this old man with a white beard. I don't care if it's George Burns or Morgan Freeman and lose it. That's not God. It's not God. God is beyond whatever we can comprehend. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. No one can see God and live. Hebrews 12 tells us that our God is a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I was thinking this week about something that is significant in, in my family's life. It actually happened 26 years ago today. 26 years ago today, we were living in the Chicago area. 26 years ago today, Uh, what has become known as the Plainfield Tornado occurred. It is considered to be one of the uh, top 10 tornadoes in terms of power and destructiveness that has ever been recorded in the history of our country. It was an F5 tornado. That means the winds were approaching 300 miles an hour. I was sitting in our family room holding my two-year-old son. Standing uh, next to me was my wife, Dana, seven and a half months pregnant with our second child when a wall exploded, came into the room and debris was flying and God in his graciousness protected us. We only had a few cuts and bruises. But 29 people died. A 20-ton tractor trailer a couple miles north of us was thrown off of the highway a half a mile into a cornfield and the driver was killed. Newspaper boy in his early teens didn't get home fast enough and was impaled by a flying piece of wood. Sometimes when we hear about the bigness of God, we can begin to think of it kind of in those terms. It's just so big and so powerful and impersonal, and it might just destroy me. But that's not all Isaiah is teaching us. He's also teaching us about the imminence of God I want you to see this third truth. Write this down. We need to behold the majestic God who renews us with his mercy. This is verses 27 to 31. It begins, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. 
And Isaiah is beginning to tell us something very important, that this great transcendent God who knows everything, who has all power, he is a God who is so big beyond our ability to conceive, but he also is aware of and involved in every single circumstance of our lives in a personal way. He knows you. He loves you. He knows us all. And because he's so great, he can do that. He can care for us. And so what Isaiah is telling us, when you feel like my way is hidden from the Lord, like you've just dropped off of God's map sometime, when you feel like my cause is disregarded by my God, in other words, God's not paying attention to what's going on in my life. When something terrible has happened to you and you are crying out for justice, do not think for a moment God doesn't see that. Do not think for a moment God doesn't record what happened and do not think for a moment that God will not balance the books of justice one day. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, he does it on his timetable, not ours. But he's God and he gets to do that. Isaiah continues, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. God is never like, you know, I just, I need a break from these people. He's never like, oh man, another day, another week, will it ever end? God is not like us. Just say it, okay? God is not like us. Say that out loud. I mean, isn't that great? Aren't aren't you glad? God never says, that was a long day. I don't know if I'm ever going to get caught up. (laughs) God's understanding is inscrutable. In other words, you couldn't understand his understanding if you spent your whole life trying to understand it. In fact, I just have to tell you, just to be honest, I'm not even coming close. So I'm going to give you this, this opportunity. You get to say, Mike, you're not even coming close. Go ahead and say it. Thanks a lot. I'm not. I'm not even coming close to explaining this to you because God is so big and he's so loving. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And and that's just such great news because some of you just came here and I know you may not have told anyone, but it's real. You're just tired and you're saying, I am spent. Some of you are are saying right now, I cried so much this week, I cannot cry anymore. Or maybe you you would say, I laid awake so many nights this week. I'm so burdened about something. I'm just weary. I'm just tired. Well, God gives strength to the weary. And when your battery is running low, God knows it and God cares and God's going to supply your need. You know, there may be somebody here, I don't know, but maybe there's somebody here who hears all this and goes, you know what? I don't need that. I have my own program. I can handle things. I have a plan. I'm working the plan. You guys can do your God thing if you want to, but you know, I'm on my own program. I can handle this. And I just have to say, you are so wrong. I just have to say, you don't know what you're talking about. So you may be thinking, well, I have an education and I have resources and I have money in the bank and I am a hard worker and I am a smart person. Listen, you will never break God's back, but he will break yours. 
And there are some people in this room in their 40s and 50s and 60s who would just love to talk to you and tell you, listen, I tried it your way. It doesn't work. Listen now, God's gonna get hold of your life because God loves you. He knows what is best for you and you will not deny his purposes. He is relentless. He pursues you. If you do not bow your knees before him in this world, you will one day in eternity. So let's just be honest with each other. Admit our need together. It's really what what Isaiah closes with in verses 30 and 31. It says, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. Even the best and the strongest, those people in the prime of life, with everything going for them, even they get tired and weary. Even they stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not go, grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God is coming to each one of us and God is saying to us, behold who I am. I am the majestic God who created all things. I am the God who sustains it all by my word. I'm also the God who loved you enough to send my son to die for your sins so that you could be in my family, so that you could be free, so that you could live forever. And I will supply your needs. I will give you what it takes if you will hope in me, if you will wait on me. Are you willing to do that today? Are you ready to exchange your little strength for God's amazing, infinite, majestic strength? God wants to give you that today. He is your God. Behold, behold your God. Would you bow your heads? We're gonna pray together. God is awesome. His majesty and his mercy are all that we need. And I I just ask as as you come before the Father, would you uh, recognize that reality once again? Just speak to him right now. Voice the prayer in your heart um, to him that he's laying on your heart. Give him your struggles. Give him your weaknesses. Give him those pains and wounds in your life. If you've never met him, then I just urge you, give him your heart. Tell him that you're turning from sin. The Bible calls that repentance. And tell him that you want to trust him with your life. The Bible calls that faith. And the Bible says when you, when you do that, this majestic, merciful God will forgive your sins, will make you clean, will give you new life. He'll, he'll adopt you into his forever family and he'll give you purpose and meaning for your life. And all you have to do is ask. Father, I, I pray for each one of us, Lord, would we allow your spirit to teach us today, revealing to us a greater understanding of who you are as you show yourself to be in your word. And Lord, would that awareness of who you are, would we allow that to speak to the reality of our lives right now, whatever we're going through, whatever we're facing, help us to rest in that 
to wait on you, to put our hope in you. And Lord, if we've never met you, then may today be the day that we ask you to be our our Lord and our Savior. We trust you with everything we have and are. Lord, do your work among us right now. Glorify your name. We pray all these things because of your son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. And everyone says,